There is a significant relationship highlighted in the scriptures, and the importance of that relationship to your thinking and to your actions can hardly be overstated. This relationship is established as early as the law, and it rings through every subsequent narrative. It's highlighted in the Gospels, and it's italicized and underlined in the letters of the New Testament. I'm referring to the relationship between revelation and judgment. I want to explore that relationship this morning. To be more precise, I want to show you how frequently the Scriptures associate the opportunity afforded by great revelation and the weight of judgment for those who don't repent accordingly. That dynamic is central to our passage this morning, and I hope you feel the gravity of that relationship by the time we leave here today. Before we begin, let me clarify a few terms. By revelation, I mean God's choice to show Himself to people. When God shows some aspect of Himself, when He gives knowledge of His nature or of His character, or of His power, His holiness, His word, His expectations, He is revealing. And when He reveals, He is creating extraordinary opportunities for repentance. That's what I mean by revelation. And by judgment, I mean God's promise to evaluate the actions of men on the last day. I'm not here referring to consequences for actions that we can see or hear or read about that happened today or have happened in the past. I'm referring to the promise that God will judge in the future the actions and intentions of man on the day of Christ's return. Everyone, especially Christians, should be thinking about and preparing for that day. And I'm tipping my hand here, but the relationship between revelation and judgment is this. The greater the revelation, the stricter the judgment. The more opportunity you're afforded to gaze upon the things of God, the more severe your judgment will be if you don't repent. Clear enough? All right. Let's highlight a few passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate that relationship between revelation and judgment. I think this will get you thinking in the right direction. If you have your Bible open to Numbers 15, verses 27 through 31. Numbers 15, verse 27 through 31. I want to thank my wife for highlighting this passage. She's a gift, and I don't know where I'd be without her. All right. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Numbers 15. Awesome. Read together with me. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes the mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, what I want you to notice about this passage is that the consequences for the same sin are radically distinct. 
Two people can commit the same sin and be judged differently. Why? Why is one atoned for and the other cut off? What sets one man apart from another? Knowledge. One guy breaks the law unintentionally. He either doesn't know God's law or he doesn't recognize that he's breaking God's law. For that guy, there's an avenue for atonement. The other man breaks the law with a high hand. In other words, he knew God's law and he knew what he was doing when he was breaking God's law and he did it anyway. God had given him that knowledge. That was a gift. He had revealed himself. He had given knowledge of his word and of his holiness and of his call and of his expectations. And against the backdrop of that revelation, that guy's sin carries the ring of wicked audacity. Or stated another way, because he had not responded to God's revelation with repentance, his sin was judged more severely. Okay, I want to turn now to the New Testament and show you how this relationship becomes clearer and clearer as the story of redemption unfolds. Turn to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 42. Luke 12, verse 42. Read with me. And the Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over the household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him, And in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I want to reread these final words. The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So just like the passage in the law, we have two people failing in exactly the same way. In both cases, the servants failed to prepare for the return of their master, but their judgment isn't the same. Why? Why is the punishment of one severe and the punishment of the other light? What sets one apart from the other? Knowledge. And Jesus finishes the parable with the words, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What is Jesus referring to? What has been given to the one and not the other? What has been entrusted to one and not the other? The revelation of God's will. He knew God's will. God had given to him knowledge of his will. And yet he did not act accordingly. So his punishment was more severe. Okay. 
One more passage before we get to Matthew. And this one is crystal clear. It's also very hard to read. Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, verse 26. I love that sound. Read with me. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's heavy. It's heavy, right? This is a powerful moment. A bit of background. The book of Hebrews was written as an appeal to believers not to turn away from Christ. They were weary and they had been persecuted and they were truly asking whether Christ was worth all this suffering. It would be so much easier to pretend they didn't know what they knew. To pretend they hadn't been shown the truth about Christ. What if they just stepped back into the life of the law? How they'd been raised. What if they just shifted back to Moses? And just at that Moses, just at that moment, actually on the basis of the law, they're confronted with the audacity of that decision. Do you remember, he asked, what happened to those who knew the words of Moses and then set them aside? Do you remember? That's right, death happened. How much severer must be the punishment for those who know the works of Christ and then set them aside? There's no greater revelation than the revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you keep sinning on the other side of that revelation, there's no hope for you. Only judgment. Only the fury of fire. The logic behind the warning is the same and it's clear. Lesser revelation, lesser punishment. Greater revelation, severer punishment. To whom much is given, much is required. Okay, I think we're ready for our passage this morning. Turn to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 16. Matthew 11, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is Jesus speaking. It is like children sitting in marketplace. And calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell, to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There's a lot going on here, so let's take it one step at a time. First, notice Christ's words, this generation. That's a signal you need to watch for as we keep reading Matthew, because this section of the book seems to revolve around Christ's reflection on his generation's faithlessness. This generation's rejection of Jesus isn't new. It's the culmination of a theme that's been building in the story of Scripture. Israel's rejection of Moses and Israel's rejection of Samuel and of the house of David and of the prophets of God himself culminates in the murder of Jesus. And when Jesus is reflecting on this uh, this generation's rejection, he's really reflecting on any who have heard and experienced the revelation of God in the work of Christ and did not answer that revelation with repentance. And in an effort to teach us what that sort of rejection's like, he draws our attention to a children's game. I'm going to have to describe this game and how it worked because we don't have this game in our culture, but we have something similar, and it's called Simon Says. It's sort of like Simon Says. So the town plaza in any village was an open space, and so it wasn't uncommon to see children playing there. And Jesus describes a group of children playing a game we may as well call Feast and Funeral. And the game goes like this. A designated leader signals with a pipe or maybe a song that it's time to celebrate a wedding feast. And all the children at that point are supposed to start dancing. And sometime thereafter, when the children are laughing and dancing and acting goofy, the leader signals that it's time to grieve at a funeral at which point the children are supposed to stop their silly dances and pretend to mourn. And the point of the game was that you could have a laugh and keep your friends on their toes and pretend. Right? But there's a sharp edge to this analogy in, in the application of it. Jesus says, John was sent to you, and he told you it was time to grieve your sins. He came to you like a prophet calling you to repent and to prepare for the coming king. He was outcast, a voice in the wilderness, but you wouldn't heed his call and you called him a madman. I came and told you it was time to celebrate. Like the arrival of a bridegroom, I came to you heralding a great wedding feast. I brought good news of a kingdom of peace. I joined in your feast and I pointed beyond them to their fulfillment in my life and death and reign. And I sat with the lost and the unclean and I offered them redemption. But you hated my message of hope and you called me a drunk. The point is that this generation refused to play. They refused to heed the signal of the funeral or the celebration of the feast like stubborn children, like spoiled children. They wouldn't listen to the message regardless of the messenger. Take a closer look at verse 19. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a sinner. A, dr- a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A madman and a drunk. What do we make of these insults? For starters, John sounded like and acted like the prophets. 
Matthew's description in 3 reads, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That may strike you as odd, and it should. Because as the people of Israel rejected their God, the distance between he and they was embodied in his messengers. It's not accidental that Elijah and Jeremiah were outcasts roaming the wilderness. Wouldn't you expect that God would speak from his temple? But the temple was empty. The people had corrupted every square inch of it with idols. The mad cries of the prophets sounded nothing like the polished and hollow worship of the priests. They were outcasts because God was outcast. The wilderness prophecies are an indictment, a living, breathing demonstration of the distance between God from His temple. It's why John wasn't a part of the festival celebrations. His very distance from the people was a rebuke. They had to go out to the wilderness to hear the Word of God. And that was the point. Christ came not as an outcast prophet, but as the promised King. He joined in the feasts of Israel and He pointed beyond them. He came preaching good news, healing the broken and opening blind eyes. He shared meals with the outcasts, offering them forgiveness and fellowship, welcoming them into the coming kingdom. He offered hope to any who would believe, but this generation wouldn't. They called John a madman because he wouldn't feast. They called Jesus a drunk because he would. But listen to Jesus' response. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is an interesting response, and it's captured the attention of a lot of writers because it sounds a lot like the wisdom passages in in Proverbs. And some people take this passage to mean that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of those wisdom passages. And while it may be true that everything Solomon says about wisdom culminates in the words and work of Jesus, that seems to miss the point of this passage. Wisdom is justified by her deeds is a response to the character attacks that have been leveled against John and Jesus. The method and mission of John and the method and mission of Jesus are distinct, but in both cases, their method and mission is wise. So when you're thinking about the wisdom of John's call to repent and the wisdom of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, you should remember that just like wisdom is justified by her deeds, so too will be John and Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that John's approach to this generation, calling this generation to repent and to make way for the coming king by bearing the fruit of good works, that was wisdom applied to John's particular moment in redemptive history. And Jesus' approach to this generation, proclaiming the mercy of God and showing that mercy by healing the unclean and dining with sinners, that was wisdom applied to Jesus' particular moment in redemptive history. And we shouldn't expect the fools of this generation to recognize it. Keep reading. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. 
But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. To this point, Jesus has reflected on his generation's faithlessness in broad strokes. Here he brings that rebuke into a sharp focus. These cities represent the region Christ himself had spent most of his time. He's preached good news to these people. He's explained the scriptures to these people. He's opened the eyes of the blind here. He's healed lepers here. And the words and the work of the incarnate Son of God have been orchestrated in these places. And within these cities, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I think it's worth taking a moment to index what we know about Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Because these are bad people. The destruction of Sodom is a story told in Genesis 19. These were a violent people, and we don't know much about them except that they were known to randomly abduct strangers and rape them in the city plaza. Horrifying. Horrifying violence and wickedness. Tyre and Sidon are prophesied against in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, and Zechariah. They were quintessentially wicked cities. We know that they were slave traders and that they broke treaties to steal and sell the people of Israel. That's what we know about them. So these people are pretty bad people. And if we're being honest here, don't they seem like much worse people than the people of Galilee? So how do we make sense of Jesus' words? But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. I tell you that it will be more bearable more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. How is that even possible? These are at least at face value God-fearing Jews. A lot of them go to the synagogue. A lot of them tithe. A lot of them celebrate the feasts. A lot of them pray. How can we... How can these people be judged more severely than Sodom? What is the basis of that strict judgment? The basis is revelation. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. You see what happened? The judgment of God is profoundly related to opportunity. God judges not merely the actions and intentions of men, but the actions and intentions of men against the backdrop of His revelation. To men. Before we move on, I want to explore the theological implications of these words. I'm heavily indebted to D.A. Carson on this front. His commentary is almost certainly over there, if you want to check it out. What are the implications of this passage? One, God has what's called contingent knowledge. Contingent knowledge is the knowledge of what would have happened in alternative circumstances. Stated simply, God knows what I would do, and he, what I will do, and He also knows what I would have done if the situation was different. And that may seem abstract, but it's fundamentally, fundamentally related to the next thing. Second, God is not obligated to reveal Himself to anyone, even if He knows that this revelation will affect change. He can know that Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would repent if he had revealed himself with mighty works. That much is clear. But at no point does this passage or any passage suggest that he was wrong for destroying those cities without first revealing himself in those ways. 
From page one, the Scriptures do not hesitate to highlight the personal responsibility of every sinner for sin. Everyone has been given sufficient opportunity to repent, and God has no obligation to reveal Himself in extraordinary ways. And third, there are degrees of wrath in the judgment of God. Every city that Jesus mentioned in this passage will bear the wrath of God forever. Every single city. No city in this passage doesn't make it out. But that wrath will be more bearable for some than for others. And that dynamic seems to hinge on Revelation. Likewise, we see in other passages, there are degrees of reward in the kingdom. Some will experience the glory of the kingdom more profoundly than others. And that dynamic seems to hinge also on Revelation. So when God reveals Himself, when He shows His people, when He shows people His character, His works, His might, His mercy, and His will... That revelation represents a tremendous opportunity to repent. God's revelation has weight. It brings gravity to your actions and intentions. If He's shown Himself, if you've encountered His Word and seen His work, you're bearing the burden of that revelation to the judgment. And your failure to repent in the face of God's tremendous revelation places you squarely on the far side of the spectrum of wickedness. To whom much is given, much is required. What then has been given to you? With what have you been entrusted? That is, I think, how this passage is meant to land. Listen, guys, I'm convinced that if there's any other generation that should feel the edge of Jesus' sharp rebuke, it's this one. Because never has God's revelation been so readily accessible. Never. Let's talk about history for a moment. Until around 300 years ago, owning a Bible in your own language was impossible. And owning a Bible in Latin was a sign of opulent wealth. The mid-15th century saw the first printed Bibles. Until this point, every copy of the Bible was handwritten by scribes, the most efficient of which would copy the full text of the Bible in no less than three months. Around 80 years after the advent of the printing press, it became possible for wealthy European families to own a Bible printed in their own language because the Bible had to, by the way, be translated from Latin, Greek, and Hebrew before it could be printed in the vernacular. Stepping back a moment, that means that for 75% of Christian history, reading the entire Bible in your own language was impossible for nearly everyone who didn't read Greek. Okay, so around 250 years ago, societies of God-fearing people with money began to raise funds to offset the cost of printing the Bible so that families who loved Jesus could study the Bible in their own language in their own home. For English speakers, it took around, until around the early 19th century for families of an average income to afford a copy of the Bible at home. If you know your history, that's around 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. In a word, Christ died 2,000 years ago. Family Bibles were a thing 200 years ago. And if we stopped there, that would place you squarely in the top 90%. Top 10%. 
But since that moment, the, word, the world has gotten better at making books, and Christian scholars have gotten better at translating the Bible. So now, any one of you right now could go to the local bookshop and grab a printed copy of the Scriptures for less than the cost of a nice dinner. And you can put... <laughs> And you can pull out your smartphone and get an indexed, searchable copy of a state-of-the-art translation for free. For free. Stop for a moment and consider it. You've got the whole counsel of God's written Word in your pocket. And you could read it whenever you want. And how many times have you set it aside to rewatch old Office episodes? <laughs> Me too, guys. Truly, you've been given much, and much will be required. As if that weren't enough, think about your church. I love this church. What a gift is this church. What a grace. You are literally, right at this moment, surrounded by people who are fighting for the faith, who are sworn to walk alongside you as you pursue the Lord. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters who pray for you, who serve you when you're weary, who will make it awkward if they see you shifting away. You're surrounded by older brothers and sisters who've made those same mistakes and are ready to give wise counsel and help you get through it. You've been given pastors who will literally devote countless late nights, innumerable early mornings, and years of their lives to see you made mature in the faith. You've been given younger brothers and sisters whose zeal can stir the memory of your first love, whose energy can spark a fire in your obedience, and whose partnership can magnify your efforts to see the gospel proclaimed in our community. Truly, you've been given much, and much will be required. As if that weren't enough, think about the library. God bless Brian Walker. Think about the library for free with absolutely no due dates. <laughs> sort of. You can walk across that courtyard and tap into hundreds of volume, maybe even a thousand, probably more than a thousand. There are stacks and stacks and stacks of books in there. We don't have enough room. Tap into hundreds of volumes of books written for the sole purpose of stirring your hope in the kingdom and fueling your pursuit of the holy. Countless works on the history of the church, on biblical doctrine, commentaries on every book of the scriptures, resources on original languages and interpretation. Just there. You pass it every time you drop your kids off at Dig. All you have to do is jot your name on a sheet of paper and you can explore the history of the faith, the riches of the scriptures and the doctrines of Christianity. Truly, you've been given much and much will be required. And if that weren't enough, and this is going to sound stupid for a second, but think about Google. Think about Google. I'm serious. You want to sit under the preaching of John Piper? Two clicks away. You want to sit under the preaching of John Calvin? Two clicks away. You want to hear the Gospels preached by John MacArthur, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, R.C. Sproul, and T. Wright, and hundreds of other names of every flavor and every tone and every point of accessibility. Two clicks away. You want to read the full commentaries of the Puritans two clicks away. That is heavy. It's a heavy weight of God's sweet gift of grace and revelation. Truly, you've been given much and much will be required. See, the scandal of Christ's generation was that not much changed. Not much changed. When Christ came and preached... 
When he changed lives and healed the broken, not much changed in their day to day. And against the backdrop of that breathtaking grace, that inaction placed them squarely on the far side of the spectrum of wickedness. We too have been given breathtaking access to revelation. It's grace upon grace to be treasured. A divine movement to be fostered in your heart, in your lives. The spectacular grace of revelation should stir you to action. It should entice you to pursue, should move you to know, to press on to know your God. Has it? Now look, you're going to walk away from this room, and if you're anything like me, you'll start reasoning with yourself. You'll say, spending time watching Netflix isn't wrong. You'll say, video games aren't evil. You'll say, it isn't a sin to spend my Saturdays watching college football. And maybe you're right. In fact, I can't find a single passage of Scripture that directly addresses Netflix. Not one. But what's there is perhaps even heavier. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. There isn't anything more important than knowing God and preparing for His kingdom. There isn't anything more important than knowing God and preparing for His kingdom. There isn't anything more important than that. And without caveat, I can tell you that anything you're doing for fun that causes you to set aside your pursuit of God, that causes you to set aside your preparation for the kingdom, is an action that you will profoundly regret. How you spend your time and attention isn't merely a matter of this is wrong and this is right, or that's permissible, and this isn't. It's a triage. It's perhaps the most important triage in the history of the world. You've only got so many days to prepare for His return. How will you use them? You've been given breathtaking access to revelation. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your good gift. Thank you for showing yourself, for teaching us of your revelation, for giving us hope in your kingdom, for giving us avenues to find you in your word, to understand your character, your mercy, your will. May we feel no sense of condemnation in the reading of your word. Yet may we with Paul forget what is behind and press on towards what is ahead. May the table be a sweet comfort and may it also be a goad to drive us to pursue you more fully, more intentionally. In Christ's name, amen.